Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge with one of our favorite guests, from Australia today, Mr. Robert Greenfield. Robert, great to see you. Wonderful to see you, Rich. Where are you today? I am in the western part of the United States, and I understand you're in the western part of Australia. Yes, we seem to both be on the edge of the continents there. I can see some mountains in the back for you. Indeed. We are nominally open here in Riverside County, but a little bit to our east, not quite the case. And uh, what an interesting time. For those of you that might be new to Mr. Greenfield, uh, his bio will be on Substack. It will be on richardhelpy.com. He is a businessman with some renown. He is also very insightful about foreign policy. Having lived in Asia for many decades, was born in the United States, but has become a dual citizen of both Australia and the United States. I understand now you've been traveling throughout Europe for a period of months. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, we were able to leave Australia, which we'll talk about in a moment. It was very difficult to to get out of Australia. Actually, until recently in Western Australia, you had to petition, actually send in documents, significant documents to the governments to, to petition to leave the country. So it wasn't just about not being able to get in. You couldn't actually get out. Could you write one for someone else to ask them to leave? Because I could see a couple of people I'd like to write them for. Just kidding. <laughs> one way. One way tickets. Okay, that's it. We will even contribute to the tickets. So, yeah, basically uh, we left uh, early August. Uh, we were able to come over to the U.S. and to meet with you which was a tremendous pleasure uh, to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, late summer. Uh, So I was able to do quite a bit of travel, considering that it was COVID. There were a lot of times where things would close and then reopen. And uh, we were in uh, several states in the United States, uh, and I was based pretty much in Europe uh, following uh, the Ukraine crisis, as well as uh, many other things uh, up until uh, mid-January. In January, after half a year, we returned first to Sydney, uh, Australia. And Sydney, Australia is very different. It had opened up uh, to the world. And then finally, to get back home here to Western Australia, we had to petition again to get back into the state. Uh, And we were fortunate uh, as residents to get into the state. And uh, now we're back home. Well, I hope that things are settling in there. I hope that all of our viewers, our listeners, and our readers on all our platforms, on Substack, on podcast platforms, YouTube TV, and on Mission Control Radio, will be sure to read your column. You wrote a fascinating piece about what Australia is like today versus when you left. Robert, you're very attuned to things socially, but maybe we should start with some of the basics that... Australia is a big country. And one of the things I learned from your column is that the Western Australia state is three times the size of the state of Texas. I can't even get my head around that. That's one state government. Yeah. So Australia is, a, um, and honestly, until you 
live here, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But once you're here, it does. It's pretty much split almost in the middle. So half of the country almost, which is almost the size of the United States, half of the country, imagine like from the Mississippi over to California is one state. Okay. And then the eastern part of the country is the rest of the states. That's kind of a rough uh, approximation, but it gives you an idea of how large uh, Western Australia is. And almost exactly like in the United States, Richard, it is uh, the, the places for the resources. So the mining, all of those kinds of things uh, that you would con- you know, consider Western United States, generally speaking, happen in the Western part of Australia. And how many other states are there uh, beyond uh, Western Australia? There's uh, six states. Uh, the largest and most, po- well, the most populous is uh, New South Wales, which is Sydney, uh, Victoria, which is Melbourne. There's one called South Australia, which is exactly what it is. Tasmania, Tasmanian devil, you know, that kind of thing. It's an island that sits off the bottom. Uh, there's Queensland to the north. And then there's a place called the Northern Territories, uh, similar to, let's say, Arizona Territories. In other words, it's not yet uh, a full state. And then there's Western Australia. Well, you mentioned the Tasmanian devil, and I'm sure a lot of people of our generation flashed the cartoon character. And sadly, I think a lot of us flashed to Dudley Do-Right in recent days, but um, maybe we don't want to go there just yet. Uh, Robert, one of the things that you write so eloquently about and speak so eloquently about is the kind of the, this contest between mandates versus freedoms. Yeah. And when we look back at our recent history, you know, we had 9-11 and 9-11 caused some constrictions on movement. It caused some furthering ability of the state to observe what one is doing. And now we have COVID and COVID further restricted where people could move, if they could work, what they could buy, how they must be medicated. And indeed, in Canada now, things are getting just a little bit more harsh. So what's your take? If you have an overview on this mandates versus freedoms and how did things look in Australia when you left? How do they look today? And, and maybe just take us through that. Asylum seekers and all the anti-COVID measures that the state took. Well, now that I'm going to write six novels about that, <laughs> that's a lot of... Uh, and I'll, and I'll read them all too, so thanks. There's a lot of area to cover. Um, let, let's start with the basics. Australia's uh, a very remote and isolated place. Um, it's an island. Little Tasmania is on the bottom, but basically it's an island, a, a, con- a continent size, almost the size of the United States. Next to it is New Zealand, which is even more remote. So Australia and New Zealand, both on the, uh, their response to the pandemic was to shut off the world, cut off the world. Now, the only other country that actually cut off the world for a long time has been uh, of any significance is China. Mm-hmm. So China is a totalitarian state, and China has the no COVID uh, policy. Obviously, we all know that it started in China. And while we can argue about how it started in China, that's where it it did come from and began. And their approach, as you watch the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, is still hazmat suits. Okay, so they are absolute total isolation people. As democracies, uh, as you talked about with mandates, democracies have a, a very different situation. So we do have elections. We do have to, uh, we are accountable, at least somewhat, 
uh, to the people in these pla- in, uh, in the countries. And in Australia and New Zealand, and I'm lumping together here at least, uh, they, they had very similar responses, which were, were islands, were cutting off. That's really not much different than Australia and New Zealand pre-COVID. Neither Australia nor New Zealand was particularly welcoming to asylum seekers. And they were both very difficult to immigrate to. You couldn't just show up. You had to prove that uh, you had means and you, you weren't going to be dependent on the state. So they they've kind of were a little bit isolated culturally, perhaps, prior to the pandemic. Am I reading too much into that? Thank you so much. It's a perfect digression because I kind of glossed over that. But you're absolutely right. Um, pandemic's one thing. But in Australia, you don't get in unless you are uh, a person of means or, let's say, uh, a, uni- a university student, college student. You can come and then you can apply for... Um, you know, long-term residency, uh, mm-hmm. equivalent of a green card uh, after you graduate, uh, depending on your uh, discipline. Uh, and Australia's population has grown through immigration, but definitely not through asylum seeking. That is absolutely correct. They put them off on an island, which is uh, it's called Christmas Island, which is not a very you know, <laughs> terrible. What can I say the name, right? Yeah. But they're still sitting there. These are uh, Afghanis. These are Indonesians. These are anybody. And unfortunately, they're primarily uh, Muslims from uh, war-torn kind of places. So asylum seekers in Australia, they tried to do the boat thing. When they came down, they stopped them. They put them off. The boats no longer come down from Indonesia. They were traveling through Indonesia doing their version of the coyotes of taking them down. Uh, but that stopped because they're sitting on islands and they're there now five, 10 years at a time. So asylum seekers are definitely not uh, welcome uh, in Australia. And they go uh, slow on all of the applications. It's um, I don't want to say it's Guantanamo, right? But it's not a fun place to be. And uh, in Australian people, by and large, have not said a lot about that. While there is a movement to say, end aside, you know, this type of uh, treatment, it's not uh, supported by the majority of the people. That being said, and I, this is a, a critical, 30% of Australians right now, 30% are not, were not born in this country. So 30% of the people in Australia are immigrants. Where I live in the Western part of Australia, because of South Africa, and also from the UK primarily, but also from India and Indonesia, and a little lesser extent, Indonesia and Malaysia, some communities are 50%. Where I live right now, a community of 200,000 people, half of the people here, including myself, of course, and my wife, we were not born in Australia. So Australia has a very strong immigrant population, which has changed the diversity of the country. Whereas the United States has 76%, if you include Hispanic whites, as white population, we only have 71% white population. That's down from 97% in the early 60s. So we are changing rapidly as a country. And the number one immigrant uh, population in Australia are Chinese, mainland Chinese. There's 1.5 million mainland Chinese now living permanently and or citizens in Australia. So when we talk about Australia, it is no longer, it's incredibly wrong to say that Australia is a white country. 
Thank you for listening or watching this segment of Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. At Substack.com, search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. Now back to Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. In the United States of America, if you join together Hispanics and people from, let's say, European ancestry, you can get to 76%. And in Australia, 71% would be, you know, perhaps English, North American, et cetera. And then I'm going to guess that 29% non-white population is primarily the Asians, primarily from China. Not to be flip about the ancestral heritage at all, but we seem to be fighting a battle here in the United States about whether Asians are a minority group that deserves special protections or if they are a different color of white supremacists. If you look at college admissions <laughs> and, and even the way that the mayor of Boston has been portrayed which probably is a broader topic that you and I could probably gnaw on for six or eight weeks at a time. I mean, we've been in San Francisco. I've been following the school board. Let's just say that, okay? Yeah, in, indeed. And and Loudoun County, same thing with the population from India and also throughout Asia that wanted a merit-based high school. And again, had, we had Matt Taibbi on one of our shows, and yeah. uh, he talked about what actually was going on there in Loudoun County. So when we hear about some of the what we in North America would see as really harsh lockdowns and policies in Australia, they didn't start in the same place. And I think in your paper, you talk about 260 days of lockdown in Melbourne, that in your vast state, that 99% of state residents haven't left the state in almost three years, and that they can actually would get stopped at the state line. What means did Australia employ to get that kind of result? I'm going to be very careful about this here. I don't want the thought of a police state uh, coming through, but it was very clear. Uh, Let's take uh, Melbourne, Victoria. That's the 260 days, okay? And specifically around uh, the city itself. So imagine New York City or LA, one of the two, or Chicago, one of those three Mm -hmm. big cities where you essentially could only go out for that during that 260 days. There's a few variations, but essentially you could only go out to get groceries. That was it. And uh, for long periods, you were not allowed to walk out uh, for anything more than a small radius, like a 1.5 kilometer, one mile radius of your home. You could do some walking. Um, there were restricted hours for basically everything. Old people got to go to the grocery stores in the morning. Uh, then after that, they had like a kind of sequestered period so that they were not exposed as much. But the police enforced it. There were police out on the street on on uh, bicycles or uh, horses, or uh, they don't use a lot of cars here. They use a lot, especially in a city like, you can imagine New York or Chicago, Uh, not in LA, but in New York, Chicago, where it's a city where you can walk around and you just tell people, go back inside. And there were fines given out. uh, If you said, you know, if you were out at the wrong time or if you did the wrong thing, clearly every club or pub or bar were closed. That has resulted in a tremendous number of lost businesses. Small businesses in particular have suffered 
uh, tremendously in Australia. Anything to do with the service industry. There are in Sydney, there are block after block after block of empty shops. Okay. And the government, uh, while they had a program that was similar to the uh, U.S. to help out businesses early on, stopped, which meant that they couldn't survive these lockdown, open up, lockdown, open up, lockdown, open up. And they were seriously uh, enforced. So that was... Could you order at home? I know a lot of things in the U.S. went to, you could do takeout and you could, you could get things delivered. Was, were those available? Yeah, of course. So there was a takeaway or takeout or Uber, Uber Eats. Let's just say that that they actually have Uber Eats here too. So they were, yes, people lived that way. I think the the biggest thing that to get across to your uh, global listeners and uh, people who are watching this is this. It's not so much that you can't survive from a food point of view, right? There are ways that they do that. Even in China, they deliver food when they cut off the cities, right? It's the mental and emotional strain, one. Two, it's the lack of school for children. That is, I think, the number one thing in the United States where even in San Francisco, people said, we've had enough. So Mm -hmm. people really, uh, was not just their own lives that were restricted. There were people dying they couldn't go see, you couldn't leave, you couldn't get out. So while you had this for a short period of time in the United States, I want to reemphasize Melbourne was locked down a total of 260 days, which is almost, you know, the better part of a year that they were locked down at various times. And as much as people say they lived with it, what I noticed, uh, Richard, when I came back, there is kind of like a, uh, a shock mentality where people, um, they are changed. The people are changed. They're not angry, but they are changed. They are people who have lived through something that they're not even sure exactly what they lived through. But they also, I can say this to you, not to go to the conclusion, but they have had enough. People have had enough. And I think this is the real point of your podcast today is not just to go over the history of two plus years, but it's that people have had enough. And I think that's a global uh, phenomenon. We can learn from our history. Uh, we can study what the policies were. We, then we have to say, where are we today and where to go forward? Uh, and I am uh, in dialogue with a couple psychologists that I want to come on to talk about what's happening in the workplace with people's mental health. Looking for someone that can come on and talk about where children are today. Certainly there's been an impact. We need to measure it and remediate it. There's going to be an impact we need to face up. But why don't we quickly go over some of the measures during COVID. You've talked about the, the lockdown. It's been reported, if you can get to the reporting, that there were both quarantine camps and quarantine hotels in Australia. How did those play into it? And then it seems that the vaccinations have been widely administered. I don't know if that was because people were volunteering to get their vaccines or whether they were being compelled to get them or something in between. COVID measures, if you manage to get into, uh, let's talk Western Australia because that's where I live, okay? So I, I went through a quarantine. I went through four quarantines in Western Australia, and one of which was two weeks in a hotel. And the two weeks in a hotel, which was uh, October 2020, it was the hazmats. Uh, you couldn't walk outside the, the threshold. 
Um, if you watched uh, the Australian Open, Djokovic was kind of like in one of those things and everybody made a big deal about it. But the reality was anywhere you wanted to get into Australia for the better part of a year and a half, uh, almost two years, was you had to go to a to, to a hotel, uh, which were uh, four starish. OK, so they were kind of like. Um, uh, I, I can't think of an equivalent in the United States budget in budget motel, maybe a little bit better than the budget motel, but not courtyard, not courtyard by Marriott. OK, kind of thing. And you st- stayed inside. You never got out. They did the PCR test over two weeks. Um, you had Internet. Uh, there was limited uh, TV uh, and you stayed there for two weeks. Let me just make sure I understand this. All right. So you, you want to leave the country or you want to come in so You've got to go to a quarantine hotel if you can afford one. Do you have to stay in your room for two weeks? Because you otherwise you'd be mixing with people in the coffee shop and the lobby and the gym and the swimming pool. Do you have to like stay in your room during that time? You cannot go past the threshold of your door. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't walk outside your door. All your food is delivered outside your door. Ding, ding, ding. You have to wait. 30 seconds so that they can leave it in their hazmats. There's a guard on the floor. So there's a 24 seven, three, you know, guy sitting there to make sure that you, there are cameras everywhere. So they record, if you open your door beyond grabbing your food, you're fine. Can you open the window in your room? No windows. Because what they found with windows were that people were going out on the balcony. Some tried to escape. Some did escape. When they escaped, a few had carried COVID with them. They were fined heavily and jailed. Okay, so there's no way out. How would they know the difference between jail and the quarantine hotel? One great lower of accommodation. Okay, Um, you don't have cable or something in the there. That's that's horrible. I mean, I'm just I'm trying not to react because I want to hear this. But this was not a big story in the U.S. press. Maybe it's because I didn't here it floated as an idea here. But what else about the quarantine hotels? And then what about this notion of quarantine camps? Because I did see a report on Twitter that three youth said escaped a quarantine camp. And it was kind of like a manhunt throughout the country. They found these kids in a car trunk someplace. Basically, um, they were, okay, China set up quarantine camps, okay? Australia considered it at the height uh, because they didn't have enough hotels. So, and they still, people wanted to get back in the country. Remember during the, uh, basically for two years, you couldn't get into the country unless you were a permanent resident, i.e. green card or a citizen. You didn't get in the country. So we're talking about citizens returning to their own country, not nothing like asylum seekers for gosh sakes, you know, nothing like, you know, Richard Helpy wanted to go on vacation, you know, kind of thing. There's nothing, there was nothing like that. So there were citizens that who wanted to come home and were willing to pay the multi-thousand dollar fee to stay in the hotel because it was not, it was done at your expense, okay? So you had to pay $2,000 to stay in the hotel for two weeks because you're saying, I want to get back to my family, right? Uh, that kind of thing. Or I wanted to get back to my in our case, we, my, my wife and I wanted to return home in October 2020. We had to go offshore for a family medical thing. We had to petition. When we came back after six weeks, we were in a hotel. 
uh, for two weeks in that, that situation. I do not know personally of any camps. I don't think it actually ever got to that. There were lower grade hotels that maybe you could characterize that way. Um, young people, as you know, you can imagine uh, bouncing, you know, as an older person, we could sit there and, you know, count the days. Plus, we were a couple, so we could support each other for that that two weeks. But a lot of people, the, by far the majority, were single persons. 20-year-old man, I want to go see my girlfriend. And I will be very creative about finding a way to do that. And they would do that. And they, they feel as that age, as you're talking about, you know, they can beat the system. So there are people who you know, would wait, you know, check the guard, sneak out the back. They got to the point, which is uh, also illegal, by the way, they locked all of the exit doors, okay? So, which would only open if there was a, a fire. Now that, as you know, in the U.S. is absolutely illegal. You cannot lock an exit door. You know, you got the push bar, but you don't lock the door. You've got to give people access to get out of a building in case of any uh, emergency. So they even did that. They finally ended up locking. You were basically locked in. So I don't want to call it a prison. Um, I tr- I mean, it was challenging for my wife and I. You know, we counted down the days. Uh, we did a lot of paperwork, as we would call it. You know, I did some Zoom meetings, uh, those kinds of things. So she also was working at the time. So she did Zoom meetings. So you could keep yourself um you know, reasonably busy. We were very fortunate. We asked for and paid for an upgrade to a a one bedroom apartment, meaning that we had two rooms so that we could, uh, she could be in one room during the day and I could be in the other room during the day. Um, We had somebody deliver us a care package, which included, you know, some goodies in there that including like a, you know, exercise thing because we couldn't exercise otherwise a a yoga mat. So we kind of had thought it through and had a, a neighbor bring us a uh, a big, you know, crate of, of this kind of stuff. So we made it through. Now that's the only time I did the two weeks. I've also done three times, uh, twice with a two week uh, home quarantine, which was uh, you can't leave your house for two mm-hmm. weeks. Okay. Uh, including, you know, you go out to your front lawn the your neighbors are empowered to uh, we call dob you in, which is call up and they do. OK. And many times uh, people tried to escape to go for a walk while in quarantine. They were uh, caught and fined. OK, kind of thing. Uh, and then the last one, which is the most recent uh, and only ended about a week ago, we were in for seven days home quarantine. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to say we were good at it by now, but we were able to order, you know, the groceries and stuff like that and and putter around the house for uh, seven days. And again, we have a house. I think you're calling out that if you're in a, in the part of your life where you've been established and you've worked hard your whole life. And I know you didn't start with anything and you built all this through your own labors and your talent and your creativity. You entered this pandemic resource. And I shudder to think about you know, you in a younger period of your life, you wouldn't have had those resources and, and to face those kind of restrictions. It, it's incalculable, but at least for my listeners in California and Canada, you know, for the Canadians. So being followed home by the Mounties from the airport to make sure you went straight home doesn't sound so bad now, does it? 
And Californians, you know, that famous scene of the portly security guard chasing the jogger down the beach. You know, you got it pretty good. I, I need to tell you about that. This is extremely important when you talk about the Mounties. When we came in and went to the hotel quarantine, we went on to a military bus with the army. When we went through customs and immigration, hazmat, everybody like that, PCR test, and we went straight on to a bus, we were not allowed into the public with the military. That There was uh, the Australian army guarded the building. Okay, so... Oh. Yeah, so we're we're talking. Yeah, you 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 were. It was very clear that you were. Um, we had face shields on, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So this has gradually, uh, Richard, lessened over time as people um, dealt with it for at least a year. Let's jump to vaccines and then maybe talk about what the next couple of weeks are. And, and again, I do want to remind everyone to please go to substack.com, thecommonbridge.substack.com. You'll find Robert's column there. Robert, I will hope, is going to be a regular guest columnist for us and contribute to our newsletter. We'll be hearing from him on other topics too. He's a renowned traveler and with great insight. And please go back and listen to some of our earlier podcasts about China and Europe and foreign policy. Let's jump to vaccines. Now, the, the headline story that I'm reading is that in Australia, 94% of those over the age of 16 have been vaccinated. Does that sound right to you? And how did Australia get there? That's pretty impressive. Well, Australia, actually, Richard, it's a very interesting story. Uh, Australia made a choice of AstraZeneca early in the vaccine situation. And then, as you know, AstraZeneca had a scare about um, blood clots. Mm -hmm. So at my age for eligibility early in the vaccine period, which we're talking a year ago, basically, right? So January, February 21, 2021, that was the only vaccine available and very limited uh, Pfizer, no Moderna, none of the other uh, choices. So as that rolled out, um, people were, older people were pushed and encouraged. And I, I did that because otherwise we really had no protection at all. Um, but basically people were buying into the AstraZeneca for anybody over 65. Okay. Then as the AstraZeneca kind of thing waned, uh, there was not enough Pfizer because the United States, sorry, the, the Australians had not bought enough from the U.S. Again, they had uh, put their money onto AstraZeneca, and they had too much AstraZeneca, not enough Pfizer. So there was a big gap, a massive gap. So Australia as a population was down in the 20s, 20 percentile, as of, let's say, the middle of the year, last year, right, July, August. Um, my wife managed to get, uh, you know, Pfizer before we left. So she had double Pfizer. I had AstraZeneca. We could leave the country. Okay, fine. However, most of the population was not uh, vaccinated, and they were not uh, wanting to be vaccinated. There was a lot of uh, anti-vax. There was a lot of, we're cut off from the world. Why should we get vaccinated? It's a fascinating story that the Australian government, which is very similar to the U.S., by the way, federal and states, and the states have the right to do all of this block my border and also uh, make mandates, very similar to the United States with, with that uh, kind of federal or federated type of uh, system. 
the, the Australian government with the states then basically said, if you want to open up to the rest of the world, if you want to travel, if you want to have no more lockdowns, if you want to be able to live and have freedom, you've got to get vaccinated. So they had from August of last year till November, a massive push in the country for vaccination. It's a, that trade-off of coerced action in, in exchange for your freedom, notwithstanding the medical side of that, which we've covered extensively in risk management, it kind of makes you wonder what's next and what's the lessons to be taken away. But Robert, in the, in the remaining time, I want to kind of go to a little bit of a more lightning round, if, if you don't mind. Uh, one of the things that we've been told is that the supply chains in a lot of Australia are broken, empty shelves in, in groceries and the like. Is, is that true or is it? To be honest, Richard, when I came back, I was shocked. You know, six months before when I left, there were no outages except that, in, you know, the initial, we did the toilet paper thing too, you know, everybody. But that all went past and it was fine. And I came back and I was really shocked. It really, the, the supply chain issues in Australia are real. Western Australia, because they cut themselves off, and basically, if you were a driver, you couldn't get in, you know, like take Ambassador Bridge type thing, right? You can't get into Western Australia. It meant that there was serious supply chain issues for this remote, large, vast state. So yeah, I walked into the major supermarket just a couple days ago after getting out of quarantine. This, you know, there's nothing there, right? Now, Ironically, there's fresh vegetables. What's really not there, and, and, and fruit, what's really not there is all of the things that are truly supply chain. Fresh vegetables and fruit can be grown in Australia pretty much anywhere. So you may not get the variety, but hey, you still got potatoes, right? Or whatever right. else you have. But what you're not getting is any of the things that you would consider a, a supply chain. You're short on dairy. You're short on any kind of thing that is made in one state and has to go in another. If it comes in from overseas, you're definitely short. It's not there, okay? Anything from the U.S., stuff from China, on and on it goes. And so I really was um, shocked about that. And I said to my neighbors, I said, how do you guys deal with it? And I can tell you this, this is bizarre, Richard. Now, I go do all the shopping. So I'm like, the, you know, I go to several places uh, kind of thing, not my wife so much. Every single supermarket, every single pharmacy that I went to, every one of them had lines of people. And I'm like, on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m., there's like, you know, the sort, and they're picking around one of this, one of that, one of this, one of that, because they don't have the choice. They're like, okay, we got in some green beans, you know, let's grab three green beans. And then there's a little sign, you know, you can only have three uh, frozen veggies, you know, kind of thing. So it's, it was something and they, they're living with it. This is Soviet era Russia, where you saw a line, you got in it. You didn't know what it was going to be, but something was at the end of that line and you wanted to put it in your shopping bag. This is shocking to hear this. And, you know, at one point, I understand that during the lockdowns, and, and again, I, I want to make sure our listeners understand, you could not cross a state line, like going Correct. from Michigan to Ohio uh, yes. or New Hampshire to Vermont, that was illegal. You'd be stopped at the border and sent. So deliveries weren't going. And I guess if we had to do a compilation of the 
worst COVID policies. Um, in <laughs> Michigan, you couldn't get seeds to plant your own garden to grow your own tomatoes. And if you couldn't get the supply chain to get tomatoes from someplace else, I guess you're eating something else. The damage that's been done to the world, to the economy, to the freedoms, for the people to earn a living is shocking. There are people like you and people like me that we've been fortunate enough to develop a skill that can be done remotely using computer, using a technology. I just read a article last night from John Cass, great writer, John Cass at Cass News, talked about the virtual economy and the practical economy. If you were in the practical economy, you got hammered. If you read the Great Barrington Declaration, the authors of that paper said that the impacts of the pandemic policies were going to fall on the working class. When we look at the impacts on children, if you're in an affluent area, great, you go into your private bedroom, get on your high-speed internet, you bring up your laptop and you do your homework as you chat with your friends. You're not doing that if you're in a lower socioeconomic strata. So these are real issues that we need to call out and get to the forefront and start talking about policies about how we're going to, to change that, which we, we will be doing in future episodes. I, I'm going to ask just two questions and then ask you to maybe give us a summary on where we might go here. So the reaction of neighbors to the conduct of their neighbors, did they like it or were they are people saying, hey, you're cool, don't worry? Go, go walk your dog. And at one point, I, I understood that Australia restricted the amount of alcohol you could get. You could get, I don't remember what it was, two bottles of wine and six beers in a 24-hour period, something like that, which hardly seems enough for your average Australian, but that's a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> everything's, everything's measured by the case here, Richard. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, okay, maybe that was it. You can only get two cases a day. No, 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 no. You were so correct. How, but I'm how saying- are the neighborhoods reacting? And I and I bring yeah. up because you know you might want to have a beer with your neighbor. And how and was your neighbor more likely to say, "Let's have a beer and talk over the fence," or was your neighbor more likely to go, "He's out at his sidewalk"? Well, I okay. Uh, now this is a very personal uh, observation, and I don't want uh, anyone to think that it's more than that. But having lived in China. Uh, having lived in Vietnam, both of which are uh, dictatorships, uh, where your neighbors um, actually do are not only empowered, but are told to, uh, you know, if you do something that's not socially acceptable, never mind illegal, uh, they dob you in. They basically say, hey, that guy did that. So I've been very conscious of this during this period of time that um, the people were asked to do that here in Australia. I felt personally very uncomfortable with that type of thing to have neighbors who were who are still very friendly, but who felt compelled that they were supposed to, you know, protect society by not letting me walk outside my my lawn, uh, kind of thing. Now there, it's true that people, the neighbors, do from their balcony say hi back and forth. I did during my period of time. Because we've managed to figure out over two years <laughs> that that's okay, right, kind of thing. But we don't meet face-to-face, especially during a quarantine uh, or, a, or a lockdown kind of thing. So I think that the damage that has been done uh, just on a uh, you know, societal damage has been uh, enormous. And I personally, again, because of my background and where I lived, I don't think that the average person gets the 
how close we have been to really losing our perspective on, you know, what was really going on with this, uh, this virus. The virus was not something where you couldn't speak to your neighbor. The virus was not something that required such draconian steps. And even though when I write about it, Richard, I am attacked incessantly by uh, people who said, absolutely required, you are wrong, there's no way, we didn't die like the way the United States did. That's true. There is absolute truth to it that in Western Australia, death has been minimal, okay? But there comes a time where, hey, we need to go back to some degree of normalcy. We need to go back to where, you know, the supply chains are working. I don't want to go into a store and have to buy, you know, Cocoa Puffs because I can't get rolled oats because I can't eat a normal diet. I got to eat what the hell's on that shelf. And I don't want to eat that stuff. I don't even think it's good for my health to be restricted. And there's a lot of people, not me, but a lot of people can't eat gluten-free. They can't eat this. They can't eat that. They're very restricted during this period of time. So I think that there is a serious um, lack of of, uh, understanding about exactly where we are. And the reason why I agreed to this podcast and to talk about this is not to rake Australia over the coals or any other place, but to say enough is enough. We have to learn to live with this and we have to learn to live with this now. Robert, I don't think we could end on a better note than that. We need to live with this. We need to learn to get past. We need to be honest about whether the trade-offs were the ones that we wanted to make. I do see people scurrying for the exits. I am so grateful for your continued support of your intellect and your experience with all of the listeners, viewers, and readers of The Common Bridge. There will be a transcript of this talk on The Common Bridge for subscribers. I do encourage my listeners, readers, and viewers to subscribe at The Common Bridge, substack.com. If you go to substack.com and enter Common Bridge or The Common Bridge, uh, or even Richard Helpy, you will find the place to subscribe. Uh, We also continue to publish our podcasts and some YouTube TV. We are available on those outlets as well as Mission Control Radio on Radio Garden app. Please listen in there to some great music from our friend and host, Carl Bingle. And with our special guest, Robert Greenfield from Perth, Australia, this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.